Steve, happy Monday. How are you, man? Uh, good. Really good, man. Um, yeah. Had a long weekend and back here at uh, work here this morning, just getting after it. Yeah. These Monday and Monday minute episodes are uh, where we do some Q&A and answer listener questions. And it, it feels like a while since we've done kind of a, a normal Monday minute. You've been gone. <laughs> I've been gone. I had Cody on. Like it's just had a, we told cheap stories on a Monday. So uh, it's been a minute since we've done one of these for sure. Yeah. We always try to kick things off with uh, kind of one EXO related question because we get quite a bit and then we'll dive into other listener questions that are um, strategy, gear, et cetera. But one recent thing that's come up, Steve, since we have talked about your sheep hunt quite a bit, was we had several questions, um, you guys mentioning how wet it was and then how packs performed with that. So uh, I'll read one as an example. This guy wrote in and said, did Steve run a K3 dry bag on a sheep hunt or did he rely on the pack itself to repel enough water? and not affect his sleeping bag and other contents within the pack. Another guy wrote in, basically asked the same question, but then also said, um, you know, it appears you guys take a different approach by using internal dry bags versus an external rain cover. Maybe you could speak a bit about that. It's always fun to hear about particular design choices that go into products. So did you run a K3 dry bag and then uh, maybe chat a little bit about why you made those dry bags and kind of that design decision compared to a pack rain cover. So yes, I did run a K3 dry bag. Um, it was a prototype bag that I was using, um, but the 3200 dry bag fit well enough inside of it that I was able to use it. Um, and yeah, everything that basically had to stay dry goes in that dry bag, sleeping bag, clothes, um, socks, you know, just anything you're basically wearing or sleeping in. Um, and then stuff that I don't care that gets wet, like my food bags were all in Ziploc bags, uh, my jet boil, uh, spine scope, tripod, uh, obviously gun, things like that are all external um, of that dry bag inside of the main bag is how I was running that most of the trip. And it works, you know, it works fantastic, right? It's uh, whatever is in the dry bag is staying dry. It's uh, the dry bags we make are RF welded, like 100% um, you know, submerge underwater dry bags. They do a fantastic job. So the, um, the pack itself, the fabric, uh, the, we use 500 D Cordura, like mill spec stuff. And it does a very good job of repelling water, but only not on that, not in that scenario where it's day in, day out wet. Right. Um, it's still not like, you know, the, I don't know how to, the fabric will leak and kind of saturate over time, but it's, it's not really like there's just puddles of water in your pack. I mean, it's, it'll be damp inside and maybe there's a little bit of water in the bottom. Uh, we do put drain holes in the bottom of the pack. So it drains out. So it's not like, well, yeah, you, you need a dry bag if it's going to be very, very wet. We, we do not make a rain cover. Um, you know, the, the biggest reason I just, just really dislike them, especially something like, Alaska where you're busting brush the whole time. The rain covers are generally made of very lightweight fabric and then it's kind of elastic around the pack. And, um, you know, to, if you need to access anything, you got to take the rain cover off. So if it is pouring rain, you're like, Oh, I need to get my spine scope and tripod out. You got to take the rain cover off and then you're exposing your pack to everything inside of it. So it's like, to me, a rain cover has always been a really just a half-assed solution to keep your gear dry. 
And the, the biggest kind of um, thing I hear from guys is like, well, you know, when my pack gets super saturated, it gets really heavy. And honestly, that's just not, I'll, I'll need to do one, but I think you're talking ounces that you add to a pack. If it's completely soaked in water, um, you know, it's the, even the foam we use is uh, doesn't absorb water. So it doesn't get heavy and it really dries out pretty quickly. If you get two, three hours of wind and sun where it's not raining, the fabric's going to dry out. It's not like a sponge where it just holds tons of moisture. So guys just get hung up on the pack getting wet, but in reality, it's just not a big deal. Like the, the most important thing is the gear inside the pack. And that's why we do the dry bag system. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that answers the question. Yeah. Those dry bags are in the six to seven ounce range. Um, yeah. Yeah. The weight penalty versus a rain cover is, is two to four ounces. Um, and the, you know, it's what I liked about them is like, you know, especially again on these types of hunts, you're crossing rivers and things like that. Like cross a river with a rain fly on your pack and fall in the water and see what happens. Like <laughs> good luck. Um, but cross a river with a dry bag system, you're going to be completely fine when you finally swim out the other side, if you fall in, um, and, and a lot of guys probably do this anyways. They, they have all their gear and smaller dry bags inside the pack, right? Like sleeping bags in a dry bag, clothes are in a dry bag, and then they still throw a rain fly on top of it. So it's just really at the end of the day, it's just adding extra weight for the convenience of keeping your Cordura dry, which to me is just not, it's not really an issue. It's more of a like condensation on your tent walls in the morning. It's kind of annoying, but at the end of the day, it doesn't like, you know, it's not a big deal. Obviously, Alaska sheep or like my upcoming mountain goat, pretty unique demands, a lot of moisture, definitely grab a dry bag. But for guys who are hearing this and they're like, I mean, actually, the second guy I read part of his question is a perfect example. He's going on an archery elk hunt in Idaho this September. What are the chances he needs a dry bag? Um, honestly, in, in the last... Uh, I'm trying to think how long we've had the dry bag system. I think we came out with it since 2015 or 16. In Idaho, I've used it maybe twice in in the last six years. Um, That's very rare. Honestly, if um, buy a good heavy-duty trash bag, they're going to weigh like two, three ounces. Throw it in the bottom of your pack, and if if you do get in a – scenario where it's going to rain a bunch then throw all your gear that needs to stay dry inside that trash bag inside the pack and that would probably do just fine so um, that's your cheap you know 15 cent alternative to having the full-on dry bag yeah Um, but it's something it's just like to me i treat that no different than i treat do i need rain gear i have it available um it's probably it's going to be in the truck with me i'm not like leaving home to go you know, here, hopefully in a few days, I'll be up chasing elk solo in Idaho and um, I'll check the weather forecast before I leave. Even though if it's, it's saying sunny, I'm going to throw rain gear in the truck and I'll just know that, you know, Hey, it's like, all right, it's going to be beautiful the next few days, or they're only calling for a slight chance of rain here or there. I'm not going to pack it. But if all of a sudden the weather forecast comes in and says, Hey, there's a, you know, 99% chance it's going to dump all day tomorrow. Then yeah, I'm throwing the rain gear in. Same deal with the dry bag or a trash bag or have some type of solution to keep your gear dry. Um, but the pack itself and this and the, you know, surprise kind of little 30, 45 minute rainstorm. That's when you don't need to worry about a dry bag. It's going to certainly keep everything dry. So 
There was one other while we were hitting a couple exo-related things quick. This guy wrote in, and not so much a question, but uh, more his feedback on something that I thought was worth sharing here publicly. He said, I have a rifle mule deer tag this year in Colorado, and someone recommended your show to me, specifically episodes 232 to 239, uh, which I should have looked i'm pretty sure that's the how to hunt mule deer series so if you guys have a mule deer tag go check out those episodes they are really great and cover kind of a to z on hunting mule deer Uh, again that's episodes 232 to 239 he said there's a lot of great information in there but the biggest thing that i picked up in one of those episodes was actually how to load a pack i've been training hard this year hiking with weight in my pack ranging from 30 to over 100 pounds In one of your podcasts, you spoke about getting dense items off the bottom of the pack and further up in between your shoulders. No one has mentioned that to me prior when talking about packs. I tried it and all I can say is thank you. How I position the weight has made a night and day difference in how well the pack feels. I didn't know how bad I was suffering before until now. I look forward to seeing what I can glean from new shows in the future. So I thought, just thought that was uh, cool to get that feedback from somebody and maybe to share for folks who are loading up their pack, whether that's with gear or later with meat. But Steve, just like a two second explanation or a comment on what he's referring to there. Yeah. I mean, weight distribution is everything you can take as he's even probably hint, saying there is you can take 30 pounds and just imagine if I had a 30 pound dumbbell and I threw that in the very bottom of the pack. Um, or if I took a bunch of five pound dumbbells and just stacked them up vertically along the, you know, the back panel of the backpack. So close to the spine, those two packs are going to feel drastically different on your back. Yeah. It's only 30 pounds. It's not like it's going to even improperly loaded. It's not like it's going to feel terrible, but that 30 pounds in the bottom of the pack is going to make it feel like 50, 30 pounds evenly distributed is going to make it feel like 20. Um, so weight distribution is critical. It's one of the reasons I'm always trying to talk guys down in bag size, because if you're not, you know, if, if you're not filling up the entire bag and and guys just have this, like, well, I just want the space just in case type of mentality. And it's like, if you're never going to use it, you know, you don't buy a F-350 if you live in a city and, you know, drive a, like driving a mile to work every day or something, or, you know, I have a, I don't tow really big, heavy things. So I just have an F-150, right? You don't buy a, don't get a massive bag if you're just never going to use it. Um, but those bigger bags just lend themselves to improper weight distribution, right? Cause it's just harder to manage. You have all this space. And if you only, if you're only filling up a third of it, it's just more likely going to go slide down to the bottom of it. You can, if you're paying a lot of attention to it, you know, use the compression straps. That's why we have the two straps with the slip locks and, and ladder locks in the bottom of the pack to kind of compress up that volume. Um, but I just see time and time again, I'll see a photo on Instagram of a, a guy who's like, Oh, I need a, you know, I need your 6,400. I need all that space. And then I see the picture, the bags, like 70% empty and everything, all the straps are loose and all the weights just hanging in the bottom of the pack. And it, it drives me nuts. Um, it's like, man, you should have gotten just a 4,800 or even a 3,200. Like you're not using that volume. Um, so that's where bag size really kind of helps with load distribution um, and making it just kind of easier because you're just naturally stacking that weight more vertically inside the pack because you're you're limited on the size of it. We'll dive into this uh, listener question who called in via SpeakPipe and had an elk strategy question. 
Hey guys, I just wanted to say thanks for the tremendous podcast. Uh, this is my third year really trying to be successful as an archery uh, elk hunter and the information and guests you guys have on has been um, just invaluable in terms of uh, getting me stoked to go out there and providing the information I need to kind of be a DIY self-taught uh, bow hunter. Um, I had one question and one recommendation. Question was, uh, I live in a pretty elky area, north northeastern Oregon, um, and the area I'm hunting this year seems to have no need for the elk to move to a bedding zone or move to feeding. There's good water, there's good feed, there's good bedding areas, it's timbered, they're kind of everywhere. Um, and going in there, I'm not really sure how to approach it, and uh, I wanted to be a little bit more efficient and thoughtful about my approach. I've just kind of been doing the um, standard move a little bit, bugle, move a little bit, bugle, um, try and track down elk. If I bump them, run back into them, circle up on benches, um, making wide circles. And, uh, I've got some decently close encounters. Haven't pulled my bow back yet. I'm hoping this year might be the year, but I wondered, um, if you had any suggestions for just super elky places where there really is no need for the elk to transit uh, a long distance to go from bedding to feeding to water, etc. All right, Steve. So you're in a good spot. Elk are there. It sounds like they're staying in a pretty contained area. He talked about them not needing to travel much for food, water, bedding, etc. What are some? What are some strategies? What are some? Basically, how would you approach that? Uh, when you know where elk are, they're not moving much and you want to be effective. So number one is wind, right? So this, I would entirely dictate the hunt on a, I'm going to want to get, I'm going to want to side, you know, I'm imagining we're on the side of a mountain here, maybe a little bench area. I'm absolutely going to want to side hill into this. So the direction that I'm coming from is going to depend on basically what the terrain looks like as far as how, how are the thermals going to be pushing through there. So even, even if you're side hilling, right, like you're, is it up Canyon, down Canyon? Like how, how is the wind moving through that? Um, that'd be my very first go-to is like, all right, how am I going to get into this country? What is the wind going to be doing? And obviously you just got to take a guess, but if you're, if it is a small area, say it's like, I can imagine some spots I have hunted in the past. It's it's really like a, you know, a couple football field size area. That's like, all right, this is where they're at. Right. Um, so if you get like 400 yards away from that area and you're, and you're in thick timber and the wind's just not good back out, like you've got no chance to go into that. If the wind is not perfect for you, um, back out. And then maybe you got to loop all the way around and come in from the other side, you get all the way over there and the wind's crap again, then back out. Like, you are not going to kill that elk if the wind isn't good for you. Um, and you got to be careful. Obviously, if, if you do go in there, what, you know, what does the surrounding country look like? If you spook these elk, where are they going to go? You know, it just, there's so many kind of scenarios of how that terrain, like once the elk spook, how are they going to bust and, and move out of there? So you got to just be thinking through all that. Um, but I would just, man, I mean, obviously this is where, you know, you could just have a, 10 different expert elk hunters tell you what, you know, once you have the wind in your favor and you do get within 200 yards of where you think the elk are, what's your strategy? And you, you know, do you sit down and just cow call and, and hope to pull something out? Do you really try to, you know, 
if you feel like it's midday and they're bedded, do you sneak into a hundred, you know, and, and rip off a freaking loud bugle? I know that's what like probably uh, I'm going to be out with Cody Callum from Morning Race here in a few weeks. He's coming out to Idaho, and I feel like that's a strategy he would probably lean towards. Um, in that scenario, is kind of just yes, slow play, get in there, and then rip off a bugle, and really just hope to stir it up real quick and get a bull to come challenge you. Me personally, um, I'm hoping to go out here the next few days solo. I'm going to have, I don't even know if I'll have a bugle, man. I'll have a cow call in my pocket and I'll get that wind perfect. And I'm just going to sneak in there like I'm stalking mule deer, probably just, you know, go from tree to tree, bush to bush, move slow. Don't make a sound guarantee. I've got the wind good and just get in there nice and slow until I do start seeing elk bodies. And then from there, um, probably just play the patient game. The, the problem with, you know, you get too close, mountain winds are fickle. Like it doesn't, you know, they might be good for five minutes or 10 minutes, or, uh, but eventually going to switch. And so it's like once you're inside that 100 yards, really the, the timer's clicking on how long you got till you can kill something. So um, it would depend on the wind situation, how, how slow I play that once I do find the elk. But it's um yeah no it's just the number one is wind like if they smell you the hunt is over and it's done so you just got to be that's got to be your primary concern like i said when i'm i'm gonna go up to a spot uh i haven't hunted since 2018 and then prior to that it was a spot like i was started hunting when i was you know when i very started bow hunting at 18 years old and uh i've already just kind of got on the maps and and i i know the country right i've hunted it a lot i know every square inch of it but depending on am I getting up there for the morning hunt or an evening hunt? I'm basically gonna, the, the wind and the terrain are going to be the two things that like, all right, I know there's elk here. I know there's elk here. I know there's elk here. Here's like a, B and C spots all like, you know, maybe in a, a mile kind of basin or something like that. Um, the, oh, it'll just be like, all right, time of day that, you know, maybe I have to work that morning. I get up there mid afternoon all right, thermals are going to be kind of going up canyon and up slope. So I'm going to want to come in from the backside of it and, and drop into to mid mountain and just side hill into these, right? Um, but and that hunt is completely different if I decide to do that first thing in the morning. If I drive up in the dark the night before and I'm hiking in the dark, then I'm going to completely approach that from the other side. But so those those two factors together, wind and and terrain, are going to dictate my hunt plan. Uh, and then get in there and, and then you're always just adjusting on the fly. Sometimes the wind just is doing stuff you don't ever think it's going to do, you know, um, you just got to be, that's where, um, you know, being patient and, and understanding, you know, that you, you can't really force it when it comes to wind. So that being said, um, I've really tried to this area in particular, then, I, then I'm going to go elk hunt. There's very low populations of elk. And so I'm going to be, very, very careful on the wind. Cause I, you know, if I get an opportunity, it might be my only one where I've, I've really tried to evolve. And we've talked this on the podcast before of I'm paying a lot less attention to the micro wind, you know, changes as you're going across the mountain and just really like, okay, midday thermals are going up. I'm side hilling into this. And, and I've, you know, over the years altered my approach to just covering as much country as possible um, and, and hunting kind of loops and things like that through country where I'm basically increasing, I'm putting more physical effort into it because I'm covering more country, but I'm also just, uh, increasing my chances of running into an elk with the right wind scenario. That's good. 
yeah, patience is the thing that comes to mind for me. Um, and just, you know, early on with elk hunting, it was like, I found elk, let's go kill an elk. Like now, like there they are, go, go, go. And, uh, you know, now I'm much more like, Hey, okay, here's elk that's located. That's great. But is it even the right time to make a play? Yeah. Um, I can think of, uh, just here recently, like encounters where similar to what you described, Steve, we, d- we weren't in a super high density area. We located some elk in the evening, um, by glassing, they were a few miles away. We observed them. We looked at their pattern that evening. We tried to understand where they were coming from, where they were going to, like what makes sense here, looking at maps, et cetera. And at first I was like, all right, you know, maybe they'll still be there in the morning. They're like doing this feeding pattern, et cetera. But in looking at it, I realized the best play was to try and be there in the evening again. And so instead of rushing in there in the dark the next morning while the winds are switching and all that stuff and potentially blowing these elk out, it much more became the scenario of, all right, we got 24 hours to get in there, to get packed in and to play this smart. And then we've spotted them in the evening. We're going to try and hunt them the next evening. And so by patience, it's yes, patience on like the encounter, but it's patience on the big picture. If you have time to go, maybe this isn't the right spot to hunt in the morning or vice versa, right? Like maybe we take all day and have a pretty low key day and just set ourselves up for success because we we understand their evening pattern and that's where we want to put ourselves into position. Um, that's what we did on this hunt and got in bow range. So it worked out like in that scenario, but it can be hard to know where elk are potentially even be pretty close to those elk and then stay patient to know when's the right time to move and what's the right play versus grab a bugle rip and charge type thing. And sometimes that is the right play. It really is. But um, that's what, that's what makes us difficult. And uh, that's why I'm still always learning. like, what's the right move here. But in general, like you, Steve, if I know elk are there, I know they're not likely moving out of this area. I want to be patient make the smartest move. Maybe that is even midday when, um, they've settled down when they're not up and moving, when the winds are more potentially predictable based on a, you know, an afternoon thermal, things like that. So I think, just stay present, stay present to the area. Um, you never know if you're just close, like you may even at midday, get that bull to fire up. He may give you his location away and now you can sneak in cause he had a midday bugle. Um, or maybe you do challenge him from that. So yeah, just get present, stay with those elk while at the same time, staying patient and then knowing when to, uh, when to make your move. Yeah, man, I like it. Yeah, so much. De- like I said, so much depends on the elk populations and the how easily can you move through the terrain. Um, yeah, that's like, and again, we just try to. I've tried to pick areas that are that really um, increase my ability to move through the terrain. It, it can be rough and steep and nasty, but there's just like a side hill you can hit hit a top of the line and just cover miles of country, right? where you're not really climbing, you know, you're just kind of side hilling and, and using minimal minimalist physical effort, the minimal physical effort that you have to, to get through that. But you're also covering a lot of country and putting yourself in places, opportunities to find elk. Um, yeah. So a lot of that's just reading the situation. And if you're from, you know, your Mark 
10, 15 years ago from Missouri and you're coming out to Colorado for the first time, you have no freaking clue what the elk populations are and what to expect. And you just, you just got to go figure it out. But those are things that you have to pay attention to and look for sign. And over time you get to know an area um, and you start to learn it and you can figure out how to hunt it the, the most effective way for that country. So one thing I'll give uh, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say just like from, from my Midwest background, a whitetail background, as I just talked about how important patience is, I will say that one thing I had to learn is that you, when it, when it's time to be aggressive, be aggressive. Like, don't be afraid to move. Don't be afraid to make noise. Don't be afraid to get in the right spot for a shooting lane, et cetera. But that's typically the last 10% of what hopefully becomes a shooting encounter, right? Like 80, 90%. (laughs) Yeah. Like 80, 90% of the time you need to be patient. You need to be smart. You need to be effective. But like, if you got a bull who's fired up or like, he's raking and he's got his head down and you can move to get in a better spot. Like be aggressive when you need to be aggressive. Um, don't always sit back on your heels. Don't sit back and call like bugle back at a bull from 300 yards, like close the distance when it's time to close the distance, be aggressive. But you also don't want to run around 90% of the time doing that in the elk woods necessarily. What were you going to say, Steve? Uh, I was just going to give some props to Hoyt. I got an RX seven earlier this year and, uh, how the tags and timing lined out. I didn't think I was going to bow hunt at all. So I literally, I'd given every year, I, uh, give my bow away to somebody and I'd given it to a kid. Um, so I had this brand new RX seven just sitting there and, um, I did no, not set up nothing. And, uh, just last week I was like, well, I'm going to, I am going to, I was able to pick up an extra archery tag here in Idaho is like my, the non-resident tag, right? Um, and I'm like, oh, I'm gonna go. Bow, I'm gonna make this happen. Go bow hunting. So I went and uh, set the bow up. I literally put it in a, a draw board. Had to add one twist to the top cable to get the timing right, and then set center shot at three quarters off the riser, knock height dead level. Uh, and then I uh, went and shot like so. I think I shot one arrow at 20 yards, and then I didn't. I didn't have. I was like, I don't got time to paper tune or fart with anything. I just want to go basically get back to distance get sighted in, shoot a broadhead, see where it's hitting. Um, so I shot one arrow at 20 and it was like a little bit high. I was like, ah, oh, perfect. So I walked back to 40, uh, shot three arrows, like an inch and a half apart, grabbed a broadhead, shot it. And it was like a half inch left of that group. And I was like, okay, yeah, that works. Uh, and then proceeded <laughs> to like sight in all the way out to 60 with broadhead, just perfectly fine with my field points. And um, it may have a not perfect tear through paper, but broadheads out to 60 or grouping with my field points. And I can tell, you know, you can just visually at that 60 yards, see the arrow flight path and there's no yeah. wobble or anything. It's flying straight and true. And, um, I was very impressed with that bow, man. Like it draws and, uh, draws easy is dead silent in the hands. No, no vibration. Um, and just like, I hadn't, I haven't really shot a bow, uh, in a couple of years. It's, you know, other than just a few random, I think the last time was I killed an elk and 20 september 20 and since then man i've probably put like 50 arrows through a bow um but i was yeah very impressed how it's like riding a bike came back pretty quick and shooting good groups and feel very confident to go kill an elk out to 60 right now that's for sure nice man let's hit another speak pipe question a guy that called in and had some questions about kind of stretching and mobility while you're hunting which honestly i think is pretty dang important and probably often overlooked Hey guys, how's it going? Uh, just touching base, actually out doing a little bit of the ruck right now, getting ready, but it's been on my mind and I keep forgetting to ask. 
be helpful at some point if you guys could get one of your health or uh, fitness guys on here to try to talk through what their plan is or what they do for stretching out while out on a hunt um, in particular out in, in backcountry I'm always just interested it seems like no matter what I do in advance of a season uh, end up getting pretty damn sore and putting miles in so just interested to hear what others are doing seeing if others are having success thanks so much all right so kind of stretching during the hunt uh definitely something i probably would have like laughed at maybe 10 years ago but now as i'm getting older <laughs> like yeah that's kind of important um i do try to in the morning like crawling out of the tent getting gear together be a little intentional and then even more so just kind of throughout the day um you know there's always those times where like even if you've been hunting hard and putting on miles you're gonna have a break and sit and do different things um in terms of specific stretches we can maybe talk a little bit about that and i i do things without knowing what the heck they're called so i can try to describe them but a couple of things i've learned between both hunting and then steve all of our death hikes I just want to mention quick before I forget is um, not only just stretching, but using what you have. So things like a trekking pole, uh, a Nalgene bottle, um, those are all great things to roll out muscles and tendons. Um, like you can use a trekking pole in your IT band. You can roll on a Nalgene for your hamstrings, all different types of things there. Um, there's these tiny little cork balls that like I packed one on the recent death hike. Um, just to get into really tight spots, I think it literally weighs 1.3 ounces or something. Um, so just before we talk about stretching, keep in mind, it could be more than stretching. And like, what do I have around me that I can do some mobility or soft tissue work um, if if that's going to be uh, important for you? And then I think you mentioned cramping. So I just wanted to throw in there as well that that can be very much tied to hydration. Um, so as part of this too, if you're talking about, oh, I'm cramping or I'm getting sore, like staying on top of hydration and electrolytes with that could be a big part of, um, you know, what you're battling as well. But uh, throw it back to you, Steve, before I maybe try to roughly describe some stretches that I yeah, do. Yeah, no, um, salt, like the, the first thing that I thought of was salt tablets. Um, and it's mm -hmm. not, it's not like, Oh, you know, I'm sore. Cause I'm you know using my muscles and I need to stretch. It's, uh, and I'm tight. It was, and this was one of the 8 million lessons I've learned from the death hike over the years was I think the first couple, you know, I do, we do the death hike and, and didn't even know what salt tablets were on the first ones. Right. Um, and I'd just be sore for the next week. Like I could barely freaking walk. And then once I started the first year, I actively just took salt tablets the entire time. Um, like the next day I was like, I'm not sore, you know? And, and it took me a while to like, realize like, oh, I must've just trained really well for it. Right. Um, but I, I have learned over the last six, seven years that salt tablets, number one, like hydration and salt tablets, um, those two things prevent me from getting that really sore thing the next day. And I don't, maybe they're unrelated. I don't think they're unrelated, but that's just something that I have personally, like, it seems like if I'm good on the salt tablets then I'm, I don't get to that, like really sore level. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and the other thing I've learned is, so, you know, I don't do any like general over stretching other than, you know, just kind of wake up in the morning and stretch your arms out. And maybe, you know, if your calves are tight, you, you know, I'll like kind of lean into the hill with my calf on the, my heel on the ground or something like that. But I have learned like the, one of the issues that pops up for me very regularly is, is really 
kind of, um, I can't even remember what the muscles called. It's kind of up by the, the hip flexor, um, tucked up inside there. And then it connects to the IT band and the IT band pulls on my kneecap. And for years I fought and fought and fought that it would just, when it flared up, it was like literally someone jabbing a knife into like this, the outside edge of my kneecap. Every time I took a step, especially going downhill. Um, and I went to a PT, this was, uh, it actually flared up one right going into the last hundred miler we did. So 2020 death hike. Um, and I went to a PT and then he, he had personally had the exact same issue. And so he knew these little workouts and stretches. And now like, all I got to do is, um, you know, leading up to hunting season or like leading up to the sheep hunt. I was just at, I was just for like the four weeks prior, probably like four days a week. I take, you know, this 15, 20 minutes and do these stretches and little workouts. And, and it just like, bam, take completely gets rid of the issue. And so I'll, it, during a hunt, if I'm, if I still feel it start to flare up for me, it's, I lay flat on my back and then I'll take like my right knee and basically like cross it up to my like left shoulder and I'm pulling and kind of stretching on, on the muscles there on the kind of outside of the hip, I guess you could say the butt. Um, and then I do another workout where I like lay on my side and kind of do these, like almost like Jane Fonda leg lift type things, you know, but it triggers a muscle that it activates a muscle right there in the kind of, and all the hip stuff. And that was the root cause of my knee pain. Um, so lesson there is like, all right, what are the, identify the issues that you get while you're out hunting and then go talk to somebody specifically to how to address those. Cause everybody's, everybody's different. You might get knee pain. You might get ankle pain. You might get hip pain. Um, you know, all that stuff. There's, there's a way to address it and fix it. And, and usually it's just like a little bit of maintenance and staying on top of it, just like everything else. And you can kind of completely eliminate the issue. Yeah, mine's pretty similar. It's, it's mostly like during a hunt and this isn't necessarily to fix anything. It's more to prevent it. And honestly, just stay a bit more loose when, you know, like taking awkward steps and stuff like that. I think if you're tight, you're more prone to injury in general. So, um, for me, it is mostly like hip and hip flexor related. So similar to what you described, like often I'll get in my back, try and, uh, you know, rotate my right leg with a straight leg over as far as I can across my left side and touch the ground. So just opening up the hips, you know, even like butterfly type stretches, um, pulling the knee in towards the chest, you can sit and cross one, like your right ankles up on your left knee and kind of lean forward and open up the hip flexor. Um, so that's where a lot of that's at for me, for sure. It's just kind of in the hips and that that central area where you're, especially with a heavy pack, rough terrain, like it, it, I think r- guys really underestimate how much is happening kind of like through the midsection and through the hips and how all that's holding everything together. And then as you said, Steve, how that's affecting uh, what's downstream, right? Like knee pains often related to hips or lower back or something to that effect. So um, things like that, bridges, um, like glute or hip bridges, for example, um, so yeah, that's definitely worth looking at, but it, obviously if guys are struggling with a specific issue, as you said, Steve, like get a consultation and then be diligent to actually target what your issue is. And that, that can go a long way to, uh, to keep you hunting hard. I know for like, we've said this so much, Steve, but man, every time I go out anymore, I'm just like, I want to keep doing this till I'm 60, you know, like 65. <laughs> like I just, I want to be doing this for another 30 years. And that changes 
what I need to do today. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it is important stuff for sure. I'll go back to salt tablets too. It's not like I'm they're kind of almost did my first aid kit at this point on, on a regular hunt. And it's only, you know, um, I don't take them every day. It's just like when you, when you are like, you have that really like heavy exertion, you just pulled 4,000 foot. Uh, it was hot midday climb. You're sweating a lot. Um, you know, the, basically the, anytime that you feel like you're drinking a lot of water just to kind of keep hydrated, that's also when I'm going to take a salt tablet. But if it's just like, it's a nice, you know, f- cool 40 degree morning and you're just side hilling through the country. It's not like I'm taking salt tablets all day long. It's just, uh, just on those heavy exertion days. But, yeah. Cool. One last quick question, Steve, this guy wrote in this is a topic I've not necessarily thought too much about. He said, what are your thoughts on headlamp usage and their impact on elk? For instance, I live in the South and where a deer and turkey hunt, I've hunted for 15 plus years and I know the lay of the land so well, I hardly ever use a headlamp. But when traveling out of state and hunting in Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, and Colorado, as I do, and I'm on new ground, um, I really feel like I need to use the headlamp from a safety standpoint, especially on a solo hunt. So how does the usage of a headlamp in the dark impact animals? And is it something I should be concerned about? You know, it's always dark, so I can't tell you. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, really, I don't, I, um, I run mine. I don't like the red light. I've, I've. Uh, whatever reason, my eyes just don't pick that up very well. I just run mine as dim as possible. And, and just, it is what it is. Like I, if you got to move in the dark, you got to move safely. And, you know, maybe if I'm in an area where I know it's kind of like open and there's elk on the other hillside, uh, I'll be, you know, I'll try to maybe run as long as I can without it. But, um, it's just something you, it's some either, if you have to move in the dark and it's dark, dark, you got to have a headlamp on. And so I'll just run it, you know, on the led mode dim as possible um and just you know make sure i have enough light to safely navigate the terrain but i honestly think it's um probably overthought you know like mm-hmm. almost like having fires in the backcountry like i've never ever like had a little fire to warm up and had uh, like it's not like elk depart the country like they're used to smelling smoke it's not it's just something that's never been an issue to me I've, I've definitely been there in instances. Well, actually we've been there, Steve, where we've bumped elk in the dark and it's like, yeah, we may have had dead, dim headlamps on and maybe we attribute it to the light, but that still could have been noise or scent, you know, slash yeah. wind and not the light even. So just cause you're in the dark and have bumped animals doesn't even mean it was your light. And our elk last year when we bumped them in the dark, I think they just, you know, they ran out, like they're almost, they kind of got bumped, but they didn't like leave the country. They just ran like no. 800 yards and it wasn't a big deal. Yeah. Well, yeah, use a lamp if you had to uh, keep it as dim as you can get away with. And I think that's the that's the suggestion. Guys, if you have other questions for us, uh, reach out anytime, send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com, or you can leave one of those audio messages just for the look for the link in the show description that says leave a message and you can use whatever device you're on now to leave us the audio message. As always, we appreciate you tuning in. Um, hit subscribe or follow if you haven't already so that you receive future episodes automatically. We'll talk to you soon.